It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 16 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.45, where are we at in society? I don't normally like talking sports in this segment, but sometimes a sign-stealing scandal requires my attention here. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with my friend Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the On Texas Football YouTube channel, talking Longhorn football to win over BYU, looking ahead to the ranked matchup with Kansas State, but we're both Rangers fans, so we're going to have to start with the franchise's first-ever World Series title. And speaking of, coming up in mere seconds, yes, the Texas Rangers are your 2023 MLB World Champs. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. As you already know by now, whether or not you cared in the moment, the Texas Rangers did dispose of the Arizona Diamondbacks last night in the fifth and final game of this year's Fall Classic by a final score of 5 to nothing. And while the victory was resounding when it was all said and done, this was a game that was an absolute nail-biter through seven full innings, really. Things start to break open in the eighth, and then in the ninth, well, Texas really puts it to bed in the top half of that inning with a Marcus Simeon home run and Josh Shabor's finishing Arizona off in the bottom of the ninth, but... What a game five, considering that this series does only go five games. I think you got everything you could have asked for, let's say as a neutral baseball fan or a Rangers fan with last night's game. Diamondbacks facing elimination. It felt like they had maybe built up a little bit of momentum in that blowout win for the Rangers in game four. But unfortunately, for D-backs fans, that was not the case. Now... They did get a little bit going offensively against the Rangers' ace, Nathan Eovaldi, seemingly getting runners on and in scoring position in every inning that Eovaldi was out there. He did make it through six innings after all. But Nate, as has been the case throughout the postseason and really in the regular season too, one of the top guys in baseball with runners in scoring position, continue to find ways to get out of trouble without giving up an earned run. On the other side, Arizona rolls out Zach Gallen one more time. Their ace was really good against the Rangers in game one. Good enough to put Arizona in position to win, but some heroics by Corey Seager in the ninth and then Adolis Garcia a couple innings later propelled the Rangers to a game one victory. Well, Gallen... It was a little bit up and down in game one. He was spectacular last night up to a point. Literally no hitting the Rangers through six innings. And truly being as unhittable as the stat suggests through five. Now the Rangers started to square up to the ball a little bit better in the sixth. And I think it foretold what we might be able to expect in the seventh. But carrying that no hitter into the seventh, it does get broken up inevitably 
by this year's World Series MVP, the second time he's won that award, the first time being with the Dodgers a few years ago. Corey Seager breaks up the no-hitter with a cue ball shot to the left side where Arizona had shifted him to pull or at worst hit the ball up the middle. And it's one of those balls that when things are going well for you, something like that counts as a hit. It does. And the Rangers scratch out their first run of the game just a couple hitters later. Evan Carter continues his spectacular end of season, getting called up in September and then becoming an integral part of this ball club in the postseason. And Mitch Garver comes through once again. He didn't have the best World Series, didn't have the best postseason, but he seemed to have some really timely hits when it was all said and done. And that gives the Rangers a lead, a one-run lead at that time that they would not relinquish. Bruce Bochy, who has certainly proven why he is considered one of the all-time best, did it once again during the year, but especially in the postseason, and more specifically after Adolis Garcia and Max Scherzer were forced off of the World Series roster following Game 3 injuries, in how he adjusted in Game 3 by bringing John Gray in, even though he was scheduled as the Game 4 starter, and John Gray is outstanding for you over three innings. There may have been one blemish, a walk or a hit or something on his record, but takes 30 pitches to get through three innings and goes a long ways in helping the Rangers to win a close one in game three. And then he makes a tweak to the lineup to essentially keep the Arizona Diamondbacks on their heels by going either left-right or right-switch or left-switch to not allow Arizona to bring one guy in to have that inherent advantage by facing so many guys from one side of the plate in a row. By the same token, Bruce Bochy has always excelled with how he manages his pitching staff. And that was the case, again, coming out of the bullpen last night. The obvious way to handle things, the way that the Rangers have handled things throughout October, is your seventh-inning guy is Sabors, Chapman's your eighth-inning guy, And if Chapman starts to get in trouble, you bring LeClerc in for an extra out or two if need be. They didn't even need LeClerc last night, thankfully, because the offense was able to get five on the board by the top of the ninth, thanks in part to a a pretty unfortunate error for the Arizona center fielder. And Bruce Bochy also brought Aroldis Chapman in in the eighth, or in the seventh, excuse me, and let him pitch in an inning that... A lot of people may not have expected going into that game. And I think it made a lot of sense because you're arguably your best reliever in these playoffs, even with LeClerc, and he was great, don't get me wrong, was Josh Shabors. Him emerging may be one of those less heralded things that helped this team win a championship this year. And sure enough, Sabors is on the mound for that final out. I do wonder if LeClerc was dealing with a minor injury which is why they kept Sabors in there. But Sabors was also rolling too. And sometimes you leave well enough alone. He gets the final out. And yes, Rangers fans, for the first time in your franchise's history, you get to celebrate a World Series. You may know this by, by now about me if you've listened enough over the years, but I too am a Rangers fan. Maybe with the exception of Texas football at this point, I've been to more Rangers games in person and I've probably watched more Rangers games than any other sport 
throughout my lifetime. And I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a Fairweather fan this year. At 45, I don't have a ton of time to spend watching Major League Baseball regular season games. But I keep an eye on things. I would look at scores and maybe box scores. And as we got to the end of September and it was uncertain as to whether the Rangers would even make the playoffs, I was tuning in a little bit more here and there, peeking in, if you will, and fully investing myself, knowing the heartbreak that was likely ahead when Texas started their playoff run in Tampa. A three-game series in Tampa, wild card round because Texas was the lesser of two teams. They had to win two of three on the road, and that proved not to be a problem at all throughout the playoffs. The Texas Rangers finish the year with an 11-0 playoff record. They did not lose a game on the road this year. They were actually not great at home, although some of those losses were at the hands of a Houston Astros team that loved playing at Globe Life Field this year. Rangers 11-0 on the road, and that is why they are the World Series champs right now. Side note for me, selfish side note that I'm sure you don't care a whole lot about, I had a friend place a seemingly meaningless $100 bet on the Rangers back in March when he was in Vegas for the final, or for March Madness, excuse me. And the Rangers' odds at that point in time, 70-1. to 1. By total coincidence, my wife and I are going to Vegas here in a couple of weeks to cash in on a $7,000 ticket. All right, coming up, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, and we do have to start with our beloved Texas Rangers winning that first title. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Normally, you hear my next guest on Wednesdays, but the Texas Rangers were in the midst of clinching their first ever World Series here on 1027 last night, but he is always nice enough and flexible enough to move days if need be, and that's why my two-segment conversation with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the On Texas Football YouTube channel is happening starting right now. Justin, my friend, thank you as always for the time. How you doing right now? My man, I am doing better than a puppy with two peckers. <laughs> I am as giddy and as happy, and it's just now sinking in that my Texas Rangers, after 46 years of breathing on this beautiful planet, are the World Series champs, were the best team in baseball, and I've waited a long time to say that, Trey. Yeah, me too, at 45, so I'm a year younger than you, but I'm guessing both of us went to a fair number of games at old Arlington Stadium back in the 80s and early 90s, seeing the likes of Ruben Sierra and Nolan Ryan and Charlie Huff and Juan Gonzalez and Pudge Rodriguez, Rafi Palmeira, I mean, just countless dudes to name over time, and then games spent at the ballpark and now Globe Life Field as well. I am curious, though, what is your first ever Texas Rangers memory. Oh, yeah, easy. Uh, 1986, uh, the very first time I ever went to a game uh, in, in, in at, at Arlington Stadium. And um, Charlie Huff beat the Cleveland Indians 9-5. to five. Um, I got a program. Steve Bouchelle autographed it. Um, I'll, I mean, I'll never forget it. 
Uh, there's, I, I remember bits and pieces of the day, obviously, because it was so long ago, but that's my first Texas Rangers memory. Now, I had, you know, posters up. I had an old Buddy Bell Sports Illustrated poster. I had a Toby Hara uh, poster as well. Um, and then in the late 80s, they got they, they started developing. You know, the, Texas, the Rangers were the first team in Major League Baseball to put an academy internationally. Yep. In the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and places like that, they were like pioneers in doing that. And it, in, in, in turn, that's how they they found a Ruben Sierra and Yvonne Rodriguez and from Puerto Rico, Juan Gonzalez and, and guys like that. Sammy Sosa uh, also. And so that those are my first memories, man. We could kill the ball. We could hit like it was nobody's business. We just couldn't pitch to save our lives. Then the Rangers signed Nolan Ryan. One off season in 1988, I believe, and or 89 rather, and the rest is history. Yeah, and uh, the, there have been ebbs and flows in pitching, but the offense has seemed to remain a constant with this franchise over time. Not to say the offense bashes the ball each and every year. This has been a uh, hundred loss or 90 plus loss baseball team for the better part of the last six to seven years now, but they have really made a concerted effort over these last couple of off seasons and spending more as the minor league system continues to get healthier. They go out and spend big bucks on guys like Seager and Simeon and DeGrom, even though they lose him early this year to injury and are active at the trade deadline in ways that suggest that they did believe that this team had a chance to compete for a championship this year, even with a late August and September swoon what happened once the games really started to matter come October, beginning with that three-game road set in Tampa where you had to win two of three, uh, this Rangers team showed that they not only have a sort of resilience, but also a team that is not to be reckoned with on the road this year, Justin, as they finish this postseason undefeated on the road, which is still mind-boggling for me to say out loud. In any sport, in the at the professional level, I've never seen a road team do that. Like there's, there's a reason they call it home field advantage. <laughs> there's a reason that, that it's remarked in that way. And it's funny because yeah, you know, this was the, this is one of the best teams in baseball for, I want to say the majority of the season. Yeah. And then obviously August, the heat caught up to him and in September was kind of just treading water. Then they call up a 21-year-old uh, prospect named Evan Carter on September 8th because Adolis Garcia gets hurt. And at that stage, you didn't really know what direction was going to happen because Houston was coming on and Seattle is, was playing very well. And they have a very good young core of a team. So you didn't know exactly how it was going to play out because if you're a Rangers fan, you probably had some PTSD, just like I have, I've had forever, it seems like. And you, you, you're a little hesitant, but don't let's let's not forget this was one of the best teams in baseball. Their lineup, top to bottom, was ridiculous. And I want to say the run margin was like 72 to 31 or something, like in in the postseason. That's crazy. But the funniest part was only the Texas Rangers could score 10 runs the night before in two innings, <laughs> and they get no hit the very next night. Uh, up until the seventh, obviously. And so it, it's just been, there's so many angles. There's so many things. I like what you said about how they built the team. 
Yeah, they spent five because a lot of people want to say, well, you know, they, they spent five hundred million on two players. They did, but buddy, John Daniels' handprints are all over this roster. Yep. These players, he stole some of these guys that other teams just didn't want anymore. Adolis Garcia, Jonah Heim from the A's, Garcia from the Cardinals, Ezekiel Duran from the Yankees, um, Jose Leclerc, uh, Nathaniel Lowe from the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, listen, and then they they developed guys, Laoti Tavares, uh, Evan Carter. Um, uh, they've got so much promise on the way up, and then probably the rookie of the year at third base in Josh Young. And so this group, it's just, it's a cool mixture. And, and anytime I think your team wins a world series, you're going to find all these little neat, unique things about them, but 11 and 0 in the postseason, you don't see that in professional sports. That to me was crazy. I want to give Bruce Bochy probably more credit than I have been. Hmm. I didn't realize how hands-on he was. I didn't realize how much influence the general manager in the, in the in the administration has on like day to day roster movements and not just roster movements but how you play the relievers you know what innings they come in and apparently Bochi told Chris Young the only way he's doing this is hands on and 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 Young has to be hands off and all those decisions on on the game day were Bochi's and so I got to give that guy credit John Daniels gets a ton of credit. Um, all, all around, and then Corey Seager. I mean, the guy was historic this offseason. I mean, this postseason. Adolis Garcia was tremendous. Nathan Ivaldi, 5-0. and oh, That's never happened before. He was big. Evan Carter hit more doubles than any baseball player in postseason history. He just turned 21. But at the end of the day, Corey Seager, my goodness, only four guys have won the World Series MVP with two different teams. That dude has it. Money well spent. Listen, you can spend all you want. Look at the Yankees. Look at the Braves. Look at the Cardinals. Look at the Red Sox. Look at the Mets. But if you're not hosting, hoisting the trophy, you, you got to finish it. And I think Texas was very smart in how they traded guys, how they developed guys, and who they spent the big bucks on. On that note, it was also great to see that when this team needed – one more pick-me-up after both Adolis Garcia and Max Scherzer go down to injuries in Game 3 and get taken off of the postseason roster in Game 4, you would need some sort of pick-me-up offensively from somewhere. It was great to see. It was a team effort for sure, but it was great to see Marcus Simeon in these last couple of games really help to pick up that slack, including hitting that two-run two homer last night that essentially sealed the victory for the Rangers, even though they still needed to get three more outs. Yeah. <laughs> the thing with Simeon, too, you know, he's kind of a streaky hitter, and he's a very pull hitter, pull-heavy guy. You know, Seager's more of a complete hitter, whereas, you know, Simeon's going to pull the ball. But he's yeah. your captain. There's a reason he's the leadoff guy. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I love the Seager acquisition two years ago I thought Simeon had only really parlayed that contract after a couple really good seasons whereas Seager had a, a larger sample size so I was a little hesitant when it came to um when it came to that but at the end of the day um Simeon listen man he wasn't hitting the ball very well in the last part of the Houston series in the first part of this Arizona series 
and he just stayed with it. He had big hits in game two, big hits in game four, and then the, that that big win in game five. And, and my memory of Marcus Simeon is, is going to be that home run that he hit in the ninth inning of game five of the World Series because we all know how much insurance runs are valuable for the Texas Rangers. They're damn near needed when you're talking about <laughs> when you're talking hmm. about that bullpen. But the best memory is my son, my little boy, who got, who stayed with me yesterday last night for the last for the game. As soon as that ball was hit by Simeon, he jumped on top of me. Hmm. And we both basically jumped off the couch because it was like that first release of okay, I think we're really going to do this. And Marcus Simeon was the most emotional after the game. I don't know if you watched it, but he said something. I wanted to record it and post it because it was very poignant. It, it was along the lines of, you know, they said, you're being emotional, Marcus. And he said, it's because I, I've loved doing this since I was a little kid and I haven't had the joy I have right now since I was a little boy on the baseball field. I haven't felt this before. And he said, and that's why I play. That's the only reason I play. I play to win. And it was beautiful. And I think that's why he's El Capitano. I think that's why he came in clutch. I think that's why that Texas has one of the best defenses in Major League Baseball. And uh, you got to be glad that him and Seager are going to be the duo for, for the foreseeable future. For sure. And Marcus Simeon led baseball and hits this year and also set a record last night for most at bats in a single season postseason included too so he's played a lot of ball and been a steadying influence on this roster as well he is justin wells of inside texas insidetexas.com beyond texas football youtube channel coming up yes we will get into some longhorn football looking back on the win over byu and ahead to a huge ranked matchup with kansas state this weekend it's sports day plus with trey elling It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back with one more segment with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, the On Texas Football YouTube channel. We are friends and we share a love for the Texas Rangers, so we spent the first segment this week talking a little Texas Rangers World Series. We do shift our focus now to Texas Longhorns football, Justin. A much-needed authoritative win over BYU, even if the final score was a little bit misleading with regards to just how dominant or not dominant the offense was. Defense looks great, and it's nice for Malik Murphy to get that very first start under his belt as well. Let's start with that quarterback position. How did you think Malik fared against the Cougars last weekend? I'd give him a passing grade. I, I thought he did pretty well considering it was his first start in college football. And 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 granted, BYU wasn't, you know, the the biggest, baddest team on the block. They, they didn't handle Texas like they had in, in, the, in the last decade. But I thought Malik Murphy played well, Trey. Uh, I thought he – there was a few times where I thought he made some really nice throws. Uh, him and Adonai Mitchell have a really nice – uh, little little symbiotic connection. I, I think those two guys work well. I, I thought he made some really good passes. I thought his decision-making got better as the game went along. In the first half, he was a little jittery, uh, made some bad made some bad throws, but I think he, he made up for it in the second half, and I think they run the ball a little bit more, and I think that helped him out. Um, on the flip side, he was throwing – he had some moon balls. 
And what I mean by that is he put some air underneath some of those passes. And, and granted, BYU doesn't have the talent in the secondary to close in on those balls. Uh, Kansas State does. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be something to watch. Now, we all know M- Murphy was born with a hand cannon put on his right shoulder. The kid can throw a ball through a wall. So we're going to see just how much of that, how much he's amped up on Saturday and how much he, he, he takes out the gun and how much he needs to use it. Um, and, and to me, that's going to be important because Kansas State, they, 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 if you don't listen, they are playing very well and they might be one of the most well-coached teams in college football. And I think it's important to mention this as well, and you just touched on it right there, Justin. Like, obviously, there's a calibration process going on with Malik Murphy because he does have such a strong arm, but at least we saw that he does have the ability to put a little bit of touch on the ball, and I'd argue he was putting too much touch on the ball at times, but that's part of the growing process as well. That's exactly right. Like, he's figuring out – it's like a pitcher – that has an arm and he's figuring out just how much gas he needs to throw because you throw it as hard as you can. It's not going to be as accurate, but you got to figure out that, that, that good medium where you can put some hum on it and yet it still put it into a good little tight window. Cause you don't have to do much with Xavier worthy and, no. and Adnan Mitchell and, and Jatavian Sanders. You got to put it in their range. Let me tell you something. He had one pass to Sanders that should have been intercepted. Yeah. But only Jatavian Sanders would prevent it from being intercepted, catch it, and still take the hit. So he got away with a few things, but that you know what? That's what a team is about. Put put some toys around the quarterback and and let those guys be talented and do their talented things. And so I think Murphy's learning. I, I really do. And it's going to be interesting to see. Kansas State is going to be a great test. Yes, they are. And before we get to that matchup, Justin, because there are some intriguing things on both sides of the ball for the Wildcats. This is a Texas defense that was reeling a little bit after the Oklahoma loss, of course, but even uh, the slight letdown that was experienced versus U of H. Why do you think we saw such an, an improvement out of them against BYU on Saturday? Um, I think just tightening up, getting a little bit better in their, in their fits, uh, Doing a few, they did a few things on that side of the ball that I think allowed them to be a little more flexible and a little more uh, play with a little more, um, you know, kind of not, not so much free will, but but just less things to complicate it. I think it, it was tightened up very well. Um, it, but at, also remember, you know, the safety position is so funny because the beginning of the season, Derek Williams wasn't getting a snap. And then week by week, they increased, they increased. And then last week, he led the team in snaps. That's a true freshman hmm. back there. I have a feeling he is going to start there for the rest of his career in Austin. I would be shocked if he didn't. And I think that, to me, is the biggest development of all. Yeah, I agree with that because, uh, surprisingly, there are dudes that you thought you might be able to lean on a little bit more at the safety position this year that are either absent right now because of injuries in the case of Jalen Catalan or Jaron Thompson, who's had a weird up and down year at the safety position too. And that's really uh, was exasperated against Oklahoma and Houston a couple weeks ago. And you also, I don't know if people noticed, but Keaton Crawford didn't play the second half against BYU. He's dinged up. Mm-hmm. And so they're 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 playing some mash 
theme songs uh, in that back seven back there. Ryan Watts is finally getting back to 100%. I think that benefits them a lot. Jody Barron is finally getting back to 100%. But, hell, he's going to play at whatever percent and be probably as good as anybody. <laughs> Not You don't worry about that guy. Um, but it, it's just funny because that Michael Taff is the unsung hero back there. Yep. You know, pe- people complain about, you know, why is he on the field and why is he playing? And then he makes a few plays. He has a couple of interceptions in back-to-back weeks, which he had a nose for the ball when he was in high school. That's, that's why he was going to go be playing football at Rice on a full ride. Um, but he's a quarterback back there. Like that to me is the most, Besides Derek Williams getting the most snaps, Michael Taft being the quarterback, getting everybody situated because there's a lot of young pups back there. Terrence Brooks, Manny Muhammad, uh, Derek Williams, Jalen Gilbo, he's getting them lined up. And to me, that's almost as important as the plays he's making. Looking ahead now to a Kansas State matchup that is a ranked matchup. It's a big noon kickoff on Fox, even though technically it's 11 a.m. Central time. Kansas State has been playing really well over the last couple of games, and uh, they were really forced to look internally after a brutal loss to Oklahoma State the Friday before Texas OU against the Cowboys team, who it turns out they've actually gotten their you-know-what together as well. What do you think the biggest challenge is that this Kansas State team poses to the Longhorns on Saturday? Ooh, they don't make mistakes. Yeah. They don't make mistakes. They got two quarterbacks that I feel like they can move the ball with. And they both do them in in different ways. You know, Avery Johnson was was damn near a top 100 national recruit. I don't think people understand that. Hmm. Um, Unbelievable athlete. He was very, very underrated until people started, like, actually watching the tape. And that kid could play play college ball anywhere. And so – I, I still hold against them the lack of Deuce Vaughn. I think that guy was a maximizer for that team and that offense over the last four years. And Chris Kleiman would, would 100% agree with that. But Kansas State, their strengths are up the middle on the line. Connor Beebe's going to be the best offensive lineman Texas faces in 2023. Uh, he, he'll play on Sundays for a decade. Uh, they don't make mistakes. They know exactly who they are. Uh, their secondary lost a couple guys, but I feel like they're getting better. Um, there is a weakness, and it is up front on defense. I think Texas can run the ball on them, and I think that's going to be the matchup I'm watching the most because Texas needs to get more push from their interior offensive line. With Cole Hudson coming back, I think that's been a big boost, but they still need more of a push. If they get that, you could see, you know, the best friend of Malik Murphy on Saturday would be a healthy dose of Jonathan Brooks, CJ Baxter, and Jaden Blue. Like, you know, make turn, you know, because Kansas State's going to turn it into a possession game. They're going to slow it down. And you might as well counter that with some phys- physicality. If you go back and listen to Sark's press conference on Monday, count how many times he used the word physicality. I felt like that was code for guys. We need to run through these people or at least prepare like we're going to run through them this week. That might be the only way they beat Kansas State. This is going to be a very close game, Trey. This is this is, this is is going to be a closer game than I think people understand. Um, and so Kansas State, they don't make mistakes. They're well coached. They know what they're good at. They know what they're not good at. But I think Kleiman really, he's got one more shot at Texas. He's 0-4. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want that last game with the horns to be a loss. 
considering he's beaten every other team in the Big 12, including winning the conference last year. Um, man, it's going to be a good game, Trey. This is going to be a revealer for a lot of different teams, and it'll be interesting to see how this thing plays out by 3 o'clock on Saturday. What's your prediction? You know, I've looked at it, man, and it, the line is, I believe, Texas by four and a half or five right now. Um, I actually think Kansas State's going to win. If 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 Quinn Ewers was playing and healthy, I, I would give Texas probably a touchdown and a field goal advantage. But I am a little worried about – I'm not so much worried about Murphy. I'm worried about Sark being stubborn and trying to go vertical when it's obvious you can run the ball, save time, protect your quarterback, and still get points. And so that – that to me is going to be very telling. If if he's not hesitant and he's like and he does a ground and pound, I think that shows a lot of uh, awareness from him, a lot of you know uh, growth. But you and I, we look at you can look at these tapes all you want. He's he opens the game with a script, and most of the 80 percent of the time he's throwing the football. That's almost ask. It's almost it, it's like a mouse trap for Kansas State. They almost want you to do that. That's I right. got Kansas State. 31-28. I think that's a fair prediction. I'm somewhere right around there right now as well. He is Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, the On Texas Football YouTube channel. Check him out on Twitter at JustinWells2424 and hear him on this show weekly, usually on Wednesday starting at 6.15, but this week because, well, we were about to cheer on our Texas Rangers winning their first ever World Series. It was on a Thursday. Thank you as always, my friend. Uh, Enjoy the World Series victory for a couple more days until that next Longhorn football game, and I'll talk to you next week. Nothing but love, brother. Coming up in Where Are We At in Society. usually don't like talking sports and where are we at, but we need to talk about this Michigan sign-stealing scandal. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Final segment of the show means it's time for Where Are We At in Society today. That's right. It is your daily look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out. Perhaps all is not lost. And sadly, today is not that day, but it is not your typical offbeat, irreverent where we at story but rather a story from the world of sports that I really haven't talked about on this show up to this point, but I feel the need to do so because the Michigan Wolverines are embroiled in a pretty significant sign-stealing scandal right now, and nobody really knows what is going to happen with that. For those who have not been following along for a couple of years now, they seem to have been involved in what some are calling high-level espionage. I think that maybe overstates the seriousness of things because it is still just sports when it's all said and done. We're not talking about government secrets here, but they have gone to great lengths to steal the signs of the opposition over the last uh, couple of seasons now, and it really boiled to a head for a lot of people in the know last year in 2022 where they were sending one individual in particular to a number of games, having him buy tickets to games, and uh, basically having people spy on teams in ways that it does happen 
but uh, not to the degree that Michigan has been doing it. Some are, are comparing it to how the Astros cheated in 2017, where Major League Baseball teams are looking for that leg up for a way to steal signs. But ultimately, everybody's doing it. The Astros just did it the best, and they went the furthest too, which maybe makes them the most wrong. And here we have Michigan doing the same. To a degree, by the way, that TCU was warned before their semifinal matchup with the Wolverines last year that this was going on. And Sonny Dykes, to his credit, evolved like he should. And that is set up some dummy signals and dupe Michigan into believing the wrong play was happening and then doing the opposite. And by the way, they won a shootout in that game. So Michigan was guessing wrong a lot, and it's why, or part of the reason why, TCU uh, looked so good on offense in that semifinal game last year before ultimately getting boat raised themselves by the Georgia Bulldogs in the championship game. So people now are asking, what should happen to Michigan? What is going to happen to Michigan? Is it inevitable that we see Jim Harbaugh go back to the NFL now and... I don't know the answers to those questions. There was a Big 12 athletic director's call earlier where some big, excuse me, I said Big 12, Big 10 call earlier where Big 10 ADs were demanding that something be done to Michigan, something be done to punish Michigan. But how much can you actually do during the season? This is an investigation that does have to play out all the way first, doesn't it? The NCAA is supposedly on top of things. That is what the College Football Playoff Committee would want you to believe based on their comments from earlier in the week where you did see the first college football playoff rankings. Michigan, not as high as some might suggest, but when the head of the committee was asked about it, he said, no, we don't concern ourselves with that. This is midseason right now. That is the NCAA's problem. We're only worried about properly ranking these teams with this first college football playoff projection, which, by the way, is BS if you really want to think deeply about it. The college football playoff committee has a reputation and a history, especially in the earliest weeks of this poll, of doing things in a manner that may be surprising to some, but the responsibility of this poll, while also making sure folks know where rankings are, is also inciting conversation, too. So when they do something surprising, they are deliberate in doing so. They're not just doing it haphazardly. They realize that it is going to spark intrigue and conversation, including disagreeable conversation, and the cycle of life plays out because ultimately they know even if they have a team slotted incorrectly by a couple of spots, by the end of the year, the haves will have elevated themselves over the have-nots. And by the way, even though some might argue that this becomes more of a problem once the playoffs expands, it becomes less of a problem then because you have more teams in the playoff, so those chirping are going to be chirping with two losses versus the occasional one-loss team that is chirping that they didn't make it into the four-team playoff. But Michigan is a little bit lower than some expected. Playoff committee says that has nothing to do with the sign-stealing scandal going on right now. It does feel like Jim Harbaugh may be coaching his final games in Ann Arbor. For better or worse. And it's probably for the best that he is leaving college football at this point. I'm not a big Jim Harbaugh fan. I recognize him as a great head coach, but he's a bit of a scumbag individual. And so, go to the NFL. I feel like the scumbags belong in the NFL. More so than at the college game. Even with his ability to finally turn Michigan around, which 
He had been done with the help of an intricate sign-stealing scandal. Jim Harbaugh, his persona belongs in the NFL much more so than college. And I don't know how much you can actually punish Michigan here. Especially if Jim Harbaugh decides to move on and take over as the head coach of today's rumors, the Vegas Raiders, or maybe it's the Chicago Bears. Or pick a team who's looking for a new head coach at the end of the season. Maybe the LA Chargers before it's all said and done. With Brandon Staley's time seemingly coming to an end. Either before or once the year is over with. So that that team doesn't waste Justin Herbert's prime any more than they already have. I get it. Justin Herbert, not as good this year. Dealing with that finger injury. He's not helped out by the fact that his head coach is a complete game day idiot. But for Michigan, who knows what the penalty is? Big Ten schools want them to receive some sort of death penalty? That's certainly not happening. Would you get slapped on the wrist and lose a couple of scholarships? A postseason ban for a year or two? What is suggested here? Because this is something that a lot of other programs have taken part in. None just did it as intricately as Michigan has up to this point. And they have gotten caught now. Ultimately, what I hope is that the NCAA's authority or lack thereof becomes visible to the degree that college football completely separates itself from this embarrassment of an organization. So I guess ultimately I hope that the NCAA doesn't do anything to Michigan or Jim Harbaugh, or maybe it slaps a show cause on Harbaugh after he's decided to take an NFL job rendering that discipline pointless. For far too long now, the NCAA has been operating five to ten years behind the times in a manner that only does a disservice to the sport of college football. Look, I get it. The NCAA does have a worth when it comes to the college version of the Olympic sports. And I'll even give them men's and women's basketball and baseball, and softball. But there is far too much on the line in college football right now to entrust any level of authority or discipline to an organization that shows time and time again that they are clueless on how to handle the biggest issues affecting the sport. This is an organization that continued to hear no evil and see no evil with regards to the transfer portal and NIL until it was too late. And now their attempt, and I realize that they are acting at the behest of these universities and athletics departments, but I guess you have to be careful who you're taking your marching orders from. Their attempts to deal with this still has to do with helping these schools to avoid calling college football players employees while at the same time insisting that collectives need to be run through the athletics department. And so essentially the players should be paid through the athletics department. They're employees at that point, but the NCAA has its marching orders. This is a last ditch effort, by the way, for the NCAA to remain a part of college football. And they're not going to get that through in federal legislation, even with a legislator, Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, in charge now. And a guy who supposedly has the relationships to make something like that happen. The NCAA was asleep at the wheel during a critical time 
for this sport. And as a result, they are getting left in the dust. And so why do I want to see nothing happen to Michigan? It's not because I don't think Michigan did something wrong. It's because I think this will be the final nail in the coffin that is the NCAA in its dealings with college football. See, to have authority, you need to have respect over your subordinates. And the NCAA doesn't have the respect over just about anybody right now. If anything, you continue to get a whole lot of eye rolling when the NCAA flexes its muscles and shows that it still has control. Sure, they may keep a kid ineligible, which by the way, you can badger them into reversing that one too as the kid at North Carolina right now and the outrage about him, which by the way, it was a stupid ruling by them to begin with, but they're trying to reassert their will even though things have been just completely nonsensical with regards to who is eligible and who is not going back to before COVID, by the way, I realize COVID changed things a little bit, but they didn't make a whole lot of sense with that. Then just like they don't make a whole lot of sense with any of their attempts to address the biggest issues plaguing the sport right now. So if they show just how toothless they are with Michigan That might be it for them with college football, which will be good for the sport. They may get to stick around through the first two years of the expanded playoff, but once that new TV deal is signed, expect a different governing body in charge of college football, one that does have a little bit more respect and therefore a little bit more authority as well. Likely happening heading into that 2026 season. That's when the new TV deal will begin something that hasn't been signed just yet all right thank you so much for tuning in tonight do appreciate it thanks as always to justin wells of inside texas insidetexas.com for hopping on for a couple of segments we'll be back tomorrow at six in the meantime have yourselves a great rest of the evening and go rangers it's sports day plus with trey ellie